It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. My name is Kay Wenigal and I'm joined by my co-hosts today, Laura and Michael. Good morning, Kay. How are you today? Good, thanks, Laura. Good. <laughs> thanks Thanks for joining me today on our first show this year. It is our first one back this year. so uh, Exciting times. Yeah, a few cobwebs to get out as we warm up, but thanks for joining us back here to go- today, guys. Yeah, it's lovely to be back. And today we're going to be talking to Emeritus Professor Maria Skylas-Gazakis, who graduated from University of New South Wales with an industrial chemistry engineering degree in 1974, winning the university medal. She completed her PhD in 1978 at the University of New South Wales School of Chemical Technology. During her postdoctorate fellowship at Bell Laboratories in the US, Maria made a chance discovery of soluble lead ions in the charging and discharging reactions in a lead-acid battery. Her paper about this discovery was awarded the Royal Australian Chemical Institute's Bloom Goodman Prize for the best young author under 30. It was the first award of many in an outstanding career. In 2013, Maria presented one of two University of New South Wales Women in Engineering Awards, the Maria Skylas Kazakis Young Professional Award for Outstanding Achievement is awarded to UNSW Faculty of Engineering female alumni. The award has been presented twice now and Maria says she's proud of the award because it promotes young women who have made significant achievements in engineering. Today we want to talk to Maria about a discovery of the all-vanadium redox battery in 1984 and her ongoing work building on the efficiency of the vanadium battery. This battery is internationally regarded as one of the most feasible energy storage technologies available today. Hello, Maria, and thanks for joining us today. Uh, Good morning. It's a pleasure. Lovely to hear from you. And sorry about the few glitches we've just had. Mm -hmm. Oh, no worries. I hope it'll be fine from now on. (laughs) We're keeping our fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get started about your work with the vanadium battery, we'd like to just get a feel for how you first became interested in the industrial chemical engineering side and also in energy storage. So do you want me to start from the beginning? or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just, okay. just a summary, well, Marie. Well, yeah, okay. Well, I, I've got to say when I was at high school, I, I did enjoy most of the subjects that I was learn, uh, studying at the time. I, I loved French. I loved drama, English, literature. I loved everything that I was studying. I oh. first said in year 11 and 12. Nothing to do that. with chemical engineering or that, those no, 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 technology well, I, 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 I love math. I got a real sort of um, uh, inspiration when I was doing math and getting great satisfaction uh, finding solutions. Um, science, I, I didn't know too much about it at the moment, even though we were studying it. I couldn't, yeah, I didn't really get a, a strong connection. But, but I did uh, attend in year 12, I attended, a, a, I suppose, a careers week, uh, which was hosted by the, back then, it was Faculty of Applied Science. And I spent a whole week where we were taken through different schools and shown 
they introduced the different lectures and uh, had different courses and career paths explained to us. And I saw that it was, this is something I really would would enjoy. So that's when I, that's how I decided to do um, initially industrial. Oh, actually, starting off with chemical engineering, moving to industrial chemistry, and then and then going back to electrochemical engineering in my in my uh, PhD degree. Yeah, so that's, so I've got to say that at the beginning, I did initially consider doing um, law. I had enrolled, uh, no, not, not hadn't enrolled, but I had initially put down as my first preference to do law. But then a family friend sort of talked me out of it. So then I went and changed my preference at the last minute and, and uh, did uh, apply to chemical engineering instead. Wow, it sounds like you're able to apply yourself to anything. That's fantastic. Maria, it's <laughs> Laura here. Oh, sorry, no, sorry. I just got to say though that, that during my degree, I was still able to enjoy all the things that, I, that um, really uh, interested me because in, at the University of New South Wales, we have uh, the and back then we could choose a wide range of subjects in general studies. So I was still able to continue mm-hmm. and do drama and uh, history of art and things like that as, um, as uh, general studies subjects. So that was good. Oh, that's really nice to keep a balance. Mm-hmm. Um, now, before we dive into the medium battery. Um, I, I've read that you consider one um, your family as one of your greatest achievements, and I just wanted to touch on that before we get into all the technical stuff. Um, can you tell us a little about um, how it was balancing work life as that all took off um, and your family life? Yeah, it was. I mean, actually, when I look back now, I sort of wonder how we did actually achieve that because it, is, <laughs> it wasn't easy, and so probably for about... Oh, 15 or so years, it was really just a huge sacrifice um, for my husband, myself, uh, in terms of uh, sacrificing other things in order to be able to achieve, well, you know, um, you know spend a lot of time with our families, with our children, and also uh, keep up with work. And and not, I've got to say that I'd never really set out to, to become a professor or anything like that. It was just... Things would happen, and you'd go with the flow, and things. And I'd just follow different paths, and and um, and you know, things would just work out. It was just sort of amazing how everything would work. It took me in a, down a particular path, but it, w- it wasn't easy. And I've got to say that without my parents in the early days, who, who looked after the children when they were young, before they went to school, before even during school holidays, um, you know, that they were such an important part of our family life and also my husband who um, right right from the beginning when he saw that we we were onto this new uh, discovery he thought he thought that this would be something valuable and he also wanted to help out as much as he could so he actually took he he left his work he used to work for the department of um uh department of health he was an analytical analytical chemist in the analytical laboratories in the department of health so he gave up that job so that he can, first of all, stay home for a little while because we just had had our third son and uh, it was very hard for, you know, for me to shuffle everything. So he spent about six months or eight months just full-time dad at home. But then he wanted to try and help out as much as he could both at home and at work. So he went back to university and studied and got a master's in uh, chemical engineering as well so that he could uh, have a little bit of background in the area that I was working in. And after that, we started applying for um, for grants together. And so we were, we were successful. We were very fortunate to get a few government grants, state government and federal government grants. 
where he was one of the co-investigators. So he was able to actually work uh, with me at the university. And that was very important because when you're, um, when, you're doing, when you're doing research and there's contract research, usually the research grants cover you, the work for two or three years. And then at the end of the research grant, you usually have students who complete their, their projects and then they leave. And they take with them a lot of basic knowledge, uh, practical, especially on the practical side of it. So it was really important to have someone who could provide the continuity. And I think, I think that was very, very important. Someone, And that was my husband who was there always in the background. Yeah, a bit of management over the top of yeah. everything that was going on. But it was also, he only worked part-time. So mm-hmm. He worked um, 15 to 20 hours a week so that he could, he could pick up the kids from school, uh, take them back to uni. He'd sort of look after them, take them swimming or something else until I finished work and then we'd go home. So... Yeah, so that's how we managed it. But yeah. I would say for about you know, 15 or so years, we didn't, we didn't have much of a, a social life. It was just work, kids, family, kids, soccer, you know, all those things. I think that's a balance that a lot of people have um, yeah. at some point in their life. Though. Yeah, and it's wonderful, actually. But mm. when I think back, they were, they were beautiful years. Yeah. Well, moving on to the discovery of your Alvanadium uh, battery, Maria, in 1984. Um, it's, to, it's considered today one of the most feasible forms of energy storage, which is extremely exciting um, for the whole industry. But can you explain what led you to your discovery and what your goals were at the time? Okay, so when I first um, became... Uh, well, actually, when my, my PhD degree was in molten salt electrochemistry, which um, it mainly covers aluminium smelting. And that's always been one of my other... Um, was my second large research area that I've been maintaining. So I was actually working in aluminium smelting, but um, but I did my postdoctoral fellowship at Bell Telephone Laboratories in Murray Hill, New Jersey, where I was also where I actually wanted to work on liquid junction photovoltaics, mm-hmm. and I was very fortunate to work with some of the top people in that field at the time. But in, in parallel, I, um, I was invited to participate in a project uh, with, in the, with a battery team, and that, that's what actually uh, got me started on batteries. But when I went back to the university as, a, as an academic as a year or so later, um, there was, it, it was really a matter of trying to find funds and to start up research. So I, I did initially start on aluminium smelting because I was able to get a grant uh, from, from Alco Aluminium back then. But around the same time, I was... Uh, contacted by one of our um, technical officers in the School of Chemical Engineering, Mr. Bob Brandt, who was who wanted to do a research project for, as part of his um, undergraduate. So he was doing a, a degree in electrical engineering, but he wanted he had to do a, a research topic, and he was working with Professor Martin Green, the big he's the big guru in photoelectrochem uh, photovoltaics at the university, and the topic that he had chosen was uh, was redox flow batteries. Redox flow batteries had been under, going undergoing development at the time by NASA, and they were working on a particular technology, which was the iron chromium battery. So he wanted someone to help to co-supervise that project. So I agreed, and he started working and uh, evaluating that technology. And it became apparent quite quickly that that there were fundamental limitations because if you have a, a flow battery, is a battery that uh, runs on two electrolytes, two solutions, a positive and a negative. And those two solutions are pumped through a cell stack where the electrochemical electron transfer reactions occur. You, one, one species loses an electron, the other, one, the other species gains the electron. And that's how electricity is generated through the flow of electrons um, through this circuit. So, but when you have two solutions of different elements, 
pumping through a stack, which and they're separated by a membrane. The membrane, no membranes are 100% efficient. So you always have partial mixing of those solutions until eventually the solutions become fully mixed. And then you have to reprocess them because you have the wrong elements on the wrong side of the, of the cell. So, so that became quite obvious almost immediately. So at the time, you know, we were, I was talking to a few colleagues who uh, we were talking about the, that problem. And one of my colleagues at the time, uh, uh, Bob Robbins, had been working on vanadium, vanadium um, for mineral extraction. So he was looking at working with some companies to look at the way um, extracting vanadium from different mineral sources. Mm-hmm. And so he said, oh, vanadium might be interesting because, you know, that exists in different oxidation states. So we sort of looked into that. And some people, in fact, NASA had initially suggested vanadium as a possible uh, combination of, um, of redox couples. But no one picked it up because vanadium, one of the vanadium forms is actually very insoluble. So one of the, you know, critical requirements for flow batteries is that the elements must be able to dissolve at very high concentration. So you've got a high concentration of all of the ions in solution in order to be able to, because the, the more of, uh, of the ions you have in solution, the more energy you can store per litre. So, so from the literature, it seemed that that wouldn't be feasible. But we thought, of, well, let's try it anyway. So uh, over the, the holidays, I, I decided to put on a, uh, an honours project student the following year to examine the electrochemistry to look to make sure that the reactions were reversible, that you could charge them and discharge them. So, uh, but over the holidays, I thought I'd better give it give it a try myself to make sure that it does work, so I, the student wouldn't be wasting their time. So I tried it, and sure enough, it seemed that under, that you could get some electric reactions happening. So I put the student onto it, and and but unfortunately, at the beginning, she just couldn't get anything to work, and we were sort of I was really scratching my head and it was baffled because I, I was thinking, well, I get it to work. How come it wasn't working for her? So anyway, after quite a bit of uh, chewing and throwing, we finally realized that when I was doing it, I was doing it, uh, preparing the electrodes very rough and we, I was just polishing it roughly um, with sandpaper and putting the, ele- the electrode into the solution and it would work. When she was doing it properly, scientifically, very systematically, it wasn't working because, and it turned out, that, that, that in fact turned out to be a major discovery because mm-hmm. certain types of electrodes just won't work. In, in the vanadium, you have, they have to have specific characteristics. So mm. we, we discovered this. We discovered the cause of this many years later. But at the time, we realised, oh, something strange. So that's that's, that's how it all started. Okay. Uh, and it, and I've got to say, at the beginning, we thought it was going to be well, got a couple of projects. Or I got, we managed to get a grant, which was very fortunate. And from there on, we sort of started looking at all aspects of these cells, not just the electrodes. The, how to make the solution because it's, it's very hard to produce the solution and in fact for many years a lot of other research groups were struggling working at how to make the solution um, so we, we managed to file a few patent, patents on that so yeah so that's how we started and but it just kept on going <laughs> I never thought that it would just keep on going for years and 30 years later we'd still be working on it yeah. um, but I've got to say that Back then, there was a huge amount of interest in what we were doing because back then, people knew that sometime in the future, there would be a need to store renewable energy and in order to expand the use of renewable energy. But unfortunately, as we've discovered you know, for many years, it was sort of huge frustration because although the need for the, the future need for that was quite evident, it took a while for the, for the market to actually 
develop. And mm. it's only in the last 10 years, I would say, that the demand, the actual demand for energy storage has become quite large. So, so Maria, um, just for our listeners, you're listening to the Beyond Zero Technology radio show and we're interviewing Professor Maria Scullis kazakas who is the inventor of the, of the vanadium redox battery. Um, and as Maria was just explaining, um, she had a number of insights that, that produced this breakthrough, uh, including the use of a single element, both sides of the um, membrane, um, the four-state element, uh, the, the, the electrodes and so on. So, Maria, just briefly... Um, in 1986, you filed the first patent for the all-vanadium redox battery. Mm-hmm. Could you just tell us about that experience um, of, of doing a patent? Well, uh, yeah, it is something that we didn't um, anticipate that we would even consider filing a patent. So at the beginning, when we first, um, when we did the first experiments and got some results, we actually went ahead and submitted two papers to the journals, uh, to scientific journals, to publish our results. It was only afterwards that we thought, oh, hold on, maybe there could be something commercial in this. So I decided to speak to Unisearch. Back then it was called Unisearch, which was the commercial arm of the University of New South Wales, and explain what we had been doing. And they thought this sounded very interesting and uh, potentially could have commercial value. So they decided to contact the patent attorney and um, start drafting up a patent certification. But but because we'd already submitted, and in fact one of the papers had already been published, we thought that this could be a problem in in filing uh, internationally. In fact, it was a problem in filing internationally because in some countries you are given six months from the time of publication to be able to to file a patent application. In other places, like in Europe, you can't have any pre-publication. So that's why at the beginning, when we first, um, when the university first agreed to, to file a patent, the first patent on the basic principle of the vanadium battery, uh, they chose only Australia, of course, because we live in Australia, Japan, because Japan back then was already, was already uh, uh, involved in many projects. They were funding a lot of projects on energy storage, so that was almost the center, central uh, focus uh, for a lot of energy storage research implementation, as much as the research itself, but the implementation into, and scaling it up into demonstration projects. They had what was called a Moonlight Project back then. Um, and also the USA, because everyone knows that the USA is the main market that, you, that most people at, back then uh, were aiming for. So we only filed in three countries. And, and that was partially because of the huge cost in filing patents, but also because we, were, we couldn't file in, we thought we couldn't file in Europe at the time because of the yep. pre-publication. Yep. But it turned out years later during the examination that it wasn't the basic principle of the vanadium battery that was the invention because other people had suggested that in the past, mm-hmm. but it was the, the discoveries that we had made that were not actually part, we hadn't really sort of published at the time, in, including how to make the electrolyte, which, you know, and the fact that you can make highly concentrated vanadium solutions by indirect methods. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. So, so that was an interesting um, insight into filing patents. And, and uh, I suppose over, uh, years later, we filed many other patents and I became we're more familiar with rules. Yeah. Maria, this is um, so interesting. We really need an hour slot rather than the, the half hour we've got. We've only got about eight minutes left, and I'd like to cover also the ongoing development that you've done on the batteries and, and then it, if we can get to the um, current state of play and, and other technologies. Um, so briefly, could you just cover what the developments have been that you, you've been working on with the vanadium battery? Well, 
Oh, well, because a lot of the work, we, we had done so much work in the last, in the first 20 years on, on membranes and electrodes and electrolytes, all those things. And a lot of people are now following on from that and extending it. And, and, and it's been exciting to see all these groups around the world who are now doing work on vanadium batteries. So we thought that you know, the area now that we, can, we really need to focus on is the, the actual battery itself and uh, its application and how to control it so that you can, uh, that you can be able to uh, operate it in the most efficient way to ensure long cycle life and uh, stability. So, so what we're working on with, with my colleague, Professor Jai Bao, in our university, uh, we're working on sophisticated control systems and monitoring systems, sensors, detectors, to be able to pick up things so that you can leave the battery on its own operating without any human intervention uh, in some remote location without and, and making sure that the battery will always be fully um, monitored, controlled, and, um, and just to ensure maximum efficiency and cycle life. So that's the main focus now that we're working on. Um, mm-hmm. We're also doing a lot of simulation as well to, to be able to, because it's very expensive and very difficult to build new batteries of new, looking, new designs, new uh, cell architectures, for example, and to see to try and improve efficiencies that way. It's an expensive and long, long drawn-out process. But so we you're have modelling it? So we're modelling it. Mm-hmm. And because we've got a lot of data from the past and we, and we can sort of validate our models and we can sort of prove that our models mm-hmm. do actually work uh, and they can predict quite efficiently what we've done in the past and, and, simula- and model that. We, we're sort of very confident that we can model new architectures as well and simulate those. So this is something that we've been focusing on in the last um, four or five years, and that's something that I find very interesting. But at the same time, there's always new membranes and new materials that are coming becoming available, and, and the focus now is trying to get the cost down because in order to... Oh, to that that actually leads into my, my question, Maria. Um, I understand that the vanadium battery is fairly expensive, so I was wondering how you could make it a little bit more economical and also what markets suit that battery the most. Well, that's exactly right. It's all new technologies at the beginning. When you're first making the first few, they're always expensive because you don't have the economies of scale. And all technologies have gone through that phase. Of course. And, and the vanadium battery is going through that phase right now. Uh, so until you, you start to get manufacturers who've got automated equipment for automated assembly, automated production lines, the cost is it's a very manual operation to assemble a battery. So that, so that cost is quite high, and that's why most of the batteries are now assembled in China, or, or at least the stack components, the more uh, uh, um, labour-intensive components. So, so what, one thing is to try and get mass production, which is very important, and there's a company in Germany called Schmidt um, Energy. They, they specialise in automated production lines. Uh, they've been doing that for photovoltaics for many years, and so now they're, they're trying to adapt this knowledge and experience and expertise into setting up automated production lines for vanadium batteries as well. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is to get uh, more, uh, much cheaper components. The membrane has been one of the most expensive components up till now. So, but, but there's a lot of new suppliers of membranes. Who, uh, and we, this is something that's an ongoing exercise. We're constantly getting new, new membranes, testing them, putting them through all the different test evaluations that we need to go through. And, and fortunately, we have found a lot of new, um, much lower-cost membranes. And the, and the other thing, of course, is to bring the cost of vanadium down. And that's been the, the critical thing that, that has been a bit of a stumbling block in the commercialization of the battery because vanadium production at the moment is linked to... It's only 
really um, the capacity is only there to supply the steel industry. There's not enough sufficient uh, additional capacity to be able to meet the growing need for vanadium batteries from vanadium batteries. So what we're doing, and that's why I've chosen to work with and assist some of the vanadium mining companies that that have a lot of huge vanadium resources. One, for example, is one in um, Canada, and there's a local one here in Australia. And what we're hoping to do is to try and um, identify lower cost, to make sure that we can actually use a lower cost vanadium, a lower purity vanadium, and that will definitely bring the cost down as well. So okay. these are the areas that we're working on. That's That sounds really exciting, and, and it sort of leads into my next question, where it doesn't seem a day goes by when we, we don't hear about new developments in batteries. Um, you've just listed a bunch of things you're doing with vanadium, but then there's all the other sorts of batteries, lithium. Um, we actually had the pleasure last year of interviewing Professor Michael Aziz from the Harvard about his organic flow battery. Yes. Um, would you be able to give us a, a very quick overview of where you see your vanadium battery or the vanadium technology sitting in comparison to, say, um, the organic flow battery and lithium batteries in terms of cost and energy density and applications? And just we have, we have only got a couple of minutes. Okay, well, flow batteries are actually probably ideally suited to applications where you need to store energy and deliver energy for four or more hours, and that's most of the renewable energy applications. Because, and the reason that ideally suited for that is because it's just the cost of the electrolyte that becomes the, the yes. critical factor, yes. because that, that is the biggest component of the total battery cost uh, when you've got four or more hours of storage. When, you've got, when you only need to store energy for about 20 or 30 minutes, and that's Sort of for applications like power quality to be able to stabilise the power output of a wind turbine, uh, things like that. But then lithium batteries are quite valuable for that because they can, because at those sort of low storage capacities, their cost isn't much more than vanadium batteries, and 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 they're probably much easier to operate for those sort of low uh, capacities. So so that's where I sort of see it. anything less than an hour, I would say. Uh, technologies like lithium would be uh, preferable. Mm-hmm. As we go for low-cost vanadium, then from two hours or more uh, energy storage, then flow batteries are definitely, and vanadium batteries are definitely superior to lithium uh, in, the ter- in terms of cost and also cycle life because flow batteries don't have a cycle life limitation. They can yeah. run hundreds of thousands of cycles. It's only the, the life of the membrane, for example, that will determine when you have to replace certain components or a stack or even the membrane itself. Mm. So, so the um, organic versus the um, vanadium question? Well, the organic is still very early in its, in, uh, in its development phase, so it's very hard to really know how it's going, you know, what uh, issues are going to be faced when they try to scale it up. But at the moment, from my assessment, the cost seems to be a little bit high, but it's just very hard to know how the cost of the electrolyte itself or the the, the main uh, in, ingredient, how that cost will come down if it's mass-produced. But at the moment, based on these sort of uh, brief cost things that we've done, it looks a little bit more, quite, in fact, quite more expensive. Okay. The, the efficiency of the vanadium one is, is rated about 75 to 80%. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see that going up much? Do you see that as a, a blocking factor in the round cycle uh, costs of, of storage and, and getting it back? Well, 80% is pretty good because uh, a lot of technologies you know, are much lower than that. So if we can uh, maintain 80% efficiency, 
but mm-hmm. at, at much higher power densities, and that's the other uh, aim, in order to be able to uh, reduce the cost is to be able to run the batteries at much higher power, uh, and that's another area of development where uh, the cost per kilowatt would be dramatically reduced yep. if we can get the power output. So, yeah, so these are uh, the areas that uh, still have a lot of promise for future improvements. This has been a fascinating discussion with you today, Maria. Thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure. I think the time went very quickly, actually. It does. It does. 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 Especially when we've got such a uh, erudite exponent of the technology. And is there any website that people can go to to find more information out about this? Well, uh, the university website, www.vrb.unsw.edu.au. There's a lot of information there, but there's a lot of, if they just do a search on Canadian batteries, there's a lot of Mm. information out there in the literature. Great. Thanks very much, Maria. Thanks, Maria. And congratulations on your work in this. It's just fantastic, the breakthroughs you made. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero show, brought to you by Beyond Zero Emissions, the climate change solution organisation. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others we have done, you can go to www.bze.org.au slash media slash radio and you'll find them there. You can also find us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. Thanks for listening. Did you miss the latest episode of your favourite 3CR show? Visit 3CR's new improved website. Now you can listen to the latest episode of almost every 3CR show with one click including music, arts, community languages, current affairs and more. No need to podcast, no need to download. Visit 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Then go to your favourite programs page to listen. Listen.